yelled, hey, bear, which is, I guess, what you're supposed to do when a bear's running at you. <laughs> hey, bear. And she grabbed me by the by the elbow and uh, instantly, it's like if you took a toddler by the arm, I'm sure that's what it must have been like for her because instantly she just twisted my arm and bam, to the ground I go in this deep snow. I'm Rebecca Huntington. You're listening to The Fine Line, real stories of adventure, risk, and rescue in the backcountry of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero with support from the Community Foundation of Jackson Hole. Backcountry Zero is a project of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation. You can support this project and the volunteers at Teton County Search and Rescue by making an online donation today. Go to tetoncountysar.org slash donate. James Moore had experience hunting in grizzly country. And if the Teton wilderness just south of Yellowstone National Park is anything, it's full of grizzlies. Wild country so remote that it promises pristine trophy elk hunting. But the terrain is rugged and it can beat you down, especially if the weather doesn't cooperate. Up for a challenge, Moore struck out for the Whetstone Mountain area with his brother Jake Peasley and their friend Brent Bongers. It didn't take them long to spot their first grizzly. In this three-part series, the fine line follows Moore and his party through the hunt, the attack, and the aftermath that all unfolded on September 25, 2017. I'm James Moore. I was the one that was attacked by the bears, and I currently live in Rock Springs, Wyoming. I'm Jake Peasley, James Moore's little brother, and uh, I was with him during the incident. So I, I don't know how long we worked that elk for. I'm not even sure what time of day it happened. I just know it was like morning time. And uh, as, a lot, as most hunts do, at some point it fell apart. Uh, maybe my frustration with the way the hunt had gone and that particular hunt, but just the trip in general, uh, I just had enough. And I was like, hey, I'm out of here. Going back to the horses, you guys make your way there when you're ready, but I'm heading back right now. And so we was sitting by a log. I just got up, headed out. So uh, like we talked about earlier, you don't go places by yourself when you're in the back country, especially when you're in, you know, dense grizzly bear country. But I did it. And I mean, I'm, I'm a grown man. You know, at the time I was 41 years old. I'm 43 years old now. I mean, Brent wasn't going to tell me no. My brother wasn't going to tell me no. So off I go. And uh, with a poor attitude. So I'm sure that's part of why they hung back and didn't just jump up and come with me. You know, I was frustrated about the way things were going and. And I think I expressed my disappointment in the mountain and said something like, I'm getting off this mountain right now, going to pack up camp. This is it. I've had enough. He's hard-headed. He wasn't going to, didn't matter what we, we had to say. Uh, he was heading back to camp. The Teton Wilderness is home to a healthy population of grizzly and black bears. But the Bruins often go unseen. Until a fresh coat of snow reveals their tracks, crisscrossing the tightly timbered slopes open glades, and ghostly burns. Uh, I'm just going back with my head down, step for step. At this point, I'm not thinking about anything. I'm not thinking about elk hunting. I'm not thinking about grizzly bears. 
I'm just walking step for step in deep snow, get back to the horses, go to camp, get something warm to eat, dry out, and make a plan for riding out the next day. And, uh, you know, not, not diligent at all. I'm not, I'm not thinking about the things I should be thinking about. So that's on me. I take responsibility for that and for what happened up there. We were in the timber when I had left, but we got back down in that kind of open timber. I wasn't into the burn yet, but it was just kind of an open hillside. And there was like a small intermittent stream down there that you had to jump across, like where the canyon really narrowed up. I don't want to say it was a canyon, but it was just like a, a little drainage and it got real narrow right there and you had to jump across the creek. And uh, uh, there was some brush when he jumped across there and, you know, head down, jumped across that creek. And I heard a sound. I looked over, 20 feet, full run. Like, what was the timing between when he walked off and the, or what, how long between when you walked off and you got to this intermittent stream? Is it like a tw- 20 minutes or? Hmm. I'm not, yeah. I'm not really sure, but it wasn't very long. She was pretty, she was pretty close. Like we should have, I, I can remember walking in there, you know, as we're calling and we keep stopping and setting up and you know, uh, anybody that goes into bear country knows that, you know, elk calling is a, is a trigger. Like you should be paying attention each time you stop and make your set because, I, uh, I don't, I don't know more often than not, but a lot of the time that's when people do have aggressive bear encounters because they're in camo. I mean, I don't think anybody puts elk scent on them anymore, but they used to. So you're in camo, you're in the brush, you're being as still as you can be, and you're making these, you know, aggressive cow calls, you know, these high-pitched, excited elk sounds, and then a grizzly comes in. So I can remember when we were making our sets as we were going in, we were kind of dogging this bull. And I kept looking back and looking around, and I'm surprised we never we never pinpointed her because we weren't going that far in between sets, you know, 100 yards, 200 yards, 400 yards. I'm surprised that we never we never picked her up trailing behind us because when we walked out, like I had told you, she had followed us in there step for step, like right along our track. So it's surprising to me that we never noticed her, but uh, perfect storm, I don't know. Yeah, far enough they couldn't see me, but... I mean, close enough they could hear me squawking. <laughs> so so you've crossed the creek and she's charging at you and you realize you don't have bear spray? That doesn't cross my mind. It's too fast. Yeah, nothing nothing crosses your mind. She was just like, I mean, literally like, I heard a sound, you know, and then there she was. And all I could think to do was just push my arm out. And so, um, yeah, uh, uh, actually, I think I looked like thinking I could climb a tree. <laughs> I think I did that like a woof, and you get that, you know, when you're really, really scared and you get that sick feeling in your stomach, you know, like that feeling. And I remember I just like twisted my head to see if there was a tree and there was like one little sapling, like four foot tall, four foot tall sapling. So I couldn't put that in between us. And uh, I just remember I shoved my elbow out, you know, my arm out, and uh, thinking she would, she would take it. We're avid hunters. We uh, probably been hunting since we were in diapers. Yeah, I would, I'd say that's fairly accurate. Uh, we're both outdoorsmen. 
Um, we grew up hunting together, obviously, when we were kids and, and all through our early 20s. But, yeah, we've we've been doing it together for a long time. And so that was our first time into Pacific Creek and more specifically up Whetstone Trailhead. So we just Google Earthed it, looked over some things. We thought, you know what, this looks like a pretty decent area. We did not know about the weather coming in. We just figured September 20-whatever was going to be a pretty good time frame, you know, to get into some elk up in that country on a general tag. We took off, I believe it was September 22nd or 21st. Don't don't hold me to that. But one of those two days we rode in, it was a nice day. But as we started to ride, it's when the storm set in. And it actually snowed for five straight days. So the ground was clear when we left the trailhead. But by the time we got up there, there was already six to eight inches of snow. And it didn't quit snowing and blowing for five days. So September 25th was the first day that we didn't wake up to it still snowing was actually the first really good hunting day that we had up there and uh, I would say somewhere around 30 inches of snow probably fell in that five days so it's unusual for that time of September I think not unexpected but probably more consecutive days of snow than you would expect to have the last week of September it was more like last week of October up there we expected some snow but 30 inches in five days was a little more than we had prepared for uh so yeah, like he said, that last day, last day of hunt was our first clear day to for actually good, good elk hunting. Without a doubt, the most physically demanding hunt that I've ever been on, condition weather conditions wise. Were you guys already seeing a lot of fresh bear tracks in the snow? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, day one, ride in. Uh, didn't get as far as we wanted to get like we had planned on going to a place I believe it's called Bobcat Rim or Bobcat Ridge or Bobcat Mountain that's where you'd hope to get to and uh, it was dark and you had zero visibility and so we just opted to set up camp and we were still probably a mile and a half or two miles from where we actually hoped to get day one so you know makeshift uh, wall tent which no poles just used rope I mean it's blizzard just get a fire going you know and uh wake up the next morning tons of snow on the ground fortunately uh it never got real cold so there was a, a couple of ponds marshy area there and we were able to keep the horses watered and stuff and with a lot of grass so that worked in our favor so day two wake up in the morning tons of snow on the ground uh get the horses going and a guide couple of guides and a couple of hunters were going in to get the elk they'd killed the day previous before we rode in there and uh we didn't know the trail so it was it was actually a good opportunity for us um seemed like really nice guys and they didn't mind we just kind of ducked in behind them with our horses and they broke trail and kind of broke the trail the very first time for us all the way up at least through that first drainage well we got to where they'd killed those two bulls and there was a an extremely large boar grizzly on that on those elk that they had killed the day before and they, you know, they chased them off. And, and I remember thinking to myself, that's the biggest grizzly I've ever seen. Yeah, that was, uh, it was quite the, it was something else to see. Uh, it was definitely the biggest bear I've ever seen in my life. Um, it, it was kind of, so they were, they were just on the other side of this knoll and we were just a little bit behind them. And, uh, you could hear all those guys hollering and, uh, we knew there had to have been a bear on on their kill so we slipped up over the nail uh that knoll and and uh all the guides were were drawn on that bear hollering at it and it just 
took off running and uh and we watched him for I don't know, probably five or ten minutes. They just hoot, hooted and hollered. Okay. Yeah, so they were they obviously uh, they didn't get off their horses. They were just as they approached that carcass, that bear was there, and and they they did it right. I mean, they didn't do anything wrong. That meat was hanging, and and uh, you could see where like they they approached where the meat was, and then you could see where the gut pile was. You know, maybe another. My memory of it's not 100% perfect, but I'm going to assume maybe like 100 yards away, and that's where that boar was. And so, you know, everybody just started yelling and hooting and hollering, and the bear went down the drainage and then just kind of looked up. You know, he obviously didn't want to go very far away, but it's kind of a testament to how I feel like the weather affected those bears, though. That that boar only ran about 250 or 300 yards kind of towards the bottom of the drainage. So there's on a, you know, we were mid-heel or whatever, mid-ridge. That bear went down to the bottom of the drains, even with all those horses and people, and he just hung out down there. He never really left, yeah. or at least while we were there for the 15 minutes that we watched him and kind of thought about where we were going. And so then we backed out, went around, went off to another drainage. But I think having that deep of snow early in the year, I'm not a biologist, I don't know bear behavior, but it just seemed like they were acting different than maybe most years when I've been around them. I'm familiar with being around grizzlies, but I wasn't familiar with being around that many. It was just everywhere you went. It, there's a lot. There was a lot of bear up there that year, and and maybe it's just because, you know, you'll you'll hunt an area in September, and you feel like, oh man, there's not a lot of bears in here. This is kind of surprising. And then you'll get that first September snow, and all of a sudden there's bear tracks everywhere. So, uh, you, you know, you can get a false sense of security when there's not snow on the ground. But, but there was a lot of lot of bear in that country, and I think. Uh, Anybody you speak with will tell you that that's probably a high-density area for grizzly bears. Anybody that's been in the backcountry will tell you nothing goes the way you wish it would go. As the week went on, it was a deterrent. Like, uh, you know, where you would normally get off of, of your horse and you'd get in that deep, dark timber and you'd be slipping around. It just You just didn't really want to do it, you know. So you spent more time up high, glassing. Plus the weather was really bad. And so you would just, like, sit there next to a fire and, and uh, you know, the storm would come through and clear up long enough you could glass for a little while but we really didn't get a hunt a big of a range as we would like to and and we really didn't get into the elk until that day uh day four we woke up in the morning and uh i got up the elk should have been bugling but the weather had them shut down and so i went outside of camp i was the first one up and uh, made a few cow calls up and down this canyon that we were next to you know just see if maybe a, a bull would answer back and Sure enough, I look up and literally like 300 yards from camp is this uh, six by six bull, and he just kind of went off into the timber. And so that was the f- the first day that we separated from each other, which is something you probably shouldn't do. So I went off by myself for the entire day that day, and Jake and Brent went with themselves. And uh, I left camp in the direction of actually of where this where that bear attack eventually will end up happening a couple of days later on. And I seen that sow and cub tracks in there. And I never seen her, but the horse was acting funny like you were, you know, like he wanted to get out of there. And there were those fresh tracks on the ground. And uh, I never I never got back on that elk, but there was quite a bit of elk sign in there. And so we knew we wanted to go press back into that country as soon as we got a chance. And I just spent that day hunting by myself. And my brother and Brent hunted together that whole day. And and I think we got some pictures of some bulls, like some smaller, like five-point bulls and some cows and stuff, but just nothing ever came together that day that I recall. I could add in there that we saw 
numerous amounts of fresh bear tracks from black bears to grizzly bears and, and uh, had a chance to see some other black bears in there too. So day five, me and my brother went down country and Brant was going to hunt where that bull had slipped into and then we were going to come low country and work our way back up through that country looking for him. So just trying to cover, you know, as much area as we can. And I remember telling Brent and Morton, well, be careful. There's a sow and a couple of cubs in there. And uh, actually, he's seen a great big black bear that day. And I, I don't know if he was pursuing it or not, but but he never seen that sow and those cubs. But the, the night of the fifth day, so the fifth night, was the first night we had heard some bugles. So that would have been September 24th. And they came from that country. And we heard them as we were hunting back up. We went down low in the morning and worked our way towards camp as the day progressed. And uh, Brent kind of hunted around camp there. And uh, I think that's why we decided our very last day, not counting the day we had to pack up camp, that would be the day that we were going to go in there and, and uh, try to get that bull killed that was bugling. Day six is the day. So uh, we got up. Uh, day five was actually not too bad a day. It snowed a little bit and the storms were, but we'd made up our mind what we were going to do day six. And uh, my brother can, can testify this. He's like, man, let's not go in there. Let's go down down low again because we had heard some gunshots. And he's like, let's not go in there. And I was like, ah, it's the last day. Let's just let's just go in there and, and try to get one one elk down. You know, I, I think that's our best bet. And uh, so whatever daylight is on September 25th, 7 o'clock or whenever whenever daylight comes around, then we were on the horses and headed into that country. And, and uh, that's on the fringe of a burn over there. And so we'd, we'd rode in that country, and with a little bit of luck, we got right on that elk, right at shortly after daylight. I couldn't tell you exactly what time. And uh, there was actually two bulls in there, and, and they were bugling, and we started working them, but it was, it was too open a country. And I'm not sure if at one point they had, they had smelled us or maybe they had seen us trying to slip through that burn, you know, because there's not a lot of cover. But they just kind of stayed a little bit out of range, and we kind of could keep tabs on them. We could hear him. And so we were just slipping around around one side of the canyon, and they were going on the other side of the canyon. And just about the time you would think that you weren't going to catch back up to him, you know, he would bugle, and we would set up, and we'd do a bunch of cow calling. And and uh, no doubt that that uh, probably aroused that bear's interest, you know. We were doing a lot of hyper-hawk kind of calling. And uh, I don't know how many hours we'd been on that. So that that country's it's some pretty tough country up there. We rode the horses as high as, as high as we could get them, and uh, we got them tied up, <clears throat> and then we set off a foot, and and immediately, like like James said, we're we're into them, and and uh, we're calling back and forth, and and like he said, uh, the wind did shift on us, and uh, kind of boogered them a little bit, but then we got we we're right back on them, and no time so we're probably i'd say at that point a mile and a half to two miles from the horses before we caught back up with them the last time one thing i tell everybody about this deal too is like i made the mistakes to get attacked by a bear like we made anybody who would listen to the story would be able to progressively go along that hunt and go oh come on man then the next thing you say like you know better than that you know, and so uh, I think that's 
one of the things that happens is you spend enough time in bear country, whether it's just an individual hunt, you come from Minnesota or Michigan and the first few days go smooth and you don't feel too bad about it, especially if there's no snow to really see what's going on there. Or if you're a longtime resident and you hunt in bear country year after year after year and nothing happens, um, you start to make little mistakes and then little mistakes can turn into big mistakes and people always feel like it's never going to happen. But it is. Like sooner or later, you know, they say like the odds of getting attacked by a grizzly bear or whatever they are, right? It's like winning the lottery or maybe less. But if you're a hunter and you spend time in those areas, those odds are not the same as they are for just an average American who might get attacked by a grizzly bear or a black bear for that matter or any animal, right? So you have to be conscious of that. So we get on this bull right away and big, big mistake number one, we drop our packs to go light and go after this thing. So uh, I didn't have I didn't have a gun. I had bear spray, but it was on the pack. So now I don't have bear spray on me. Um, my brother has a gun. Pongers has a gun, and we and we we head in we head in after this elk. And the only one who takes their pack and all their supplies is Brant Bongers. Right? Like he doesn't leave his pack behind. And so you know, I, I don't know. It's just important to the story to know that there were mistakes made along the way, and it's not like. If you just go to the mountains, you're going to get attacked by a grizzly bear. You just have to remember what you're supposed to do and, and be diligent about following those steps every day, not just day one or day three, like every day, every hour. You have to make the right decisions, you know? After leaving his brother and friend, frustrated by the hunt, Moore found himself alone and completely exposed. There was the sapling tree, too small to climb, no bear spray, and the grizzly sow. Clamping down on his arm with her teeth, she lifted him into the air and then tossed him to the ground. And uh, I, I landed on my right side. And I remember I, I tried to hit her and I tried to kick at her, but it didn't. nothing was really working. And uh, at this point, she's just making a lot of noise and just like flailing my arm around. So I'm not, not in like tons of danger at this point. She just has my arm, and she's just making crazy sounds, and she's clawing at me, you know. I think, okay, I just have to cover up. Like, that's what you're supposed to do. You're just supposed to curl up in a ball and cover up. And I I did that, and I, I think that's what you should do. But I didn't get face down because she had me by the arm, and I was on my side, so I just curled up in a ball, which leaves you uh, probably probably more exposed. If I had to do it again, I would... I would know to go face down. I've read some other stories, and that's what people do. And so you take the brunt force, like, in your back and, and rump area and, you know, maybe your shoulder arm. But uh, you don't get the, the face damage that you might get if she gets you on your back. And you're pretty vulnerable, you know, your face and front neck area. <clears throat> so this goes on. I'm not sure, but I, all I can think to do is yell for my, my brother. I could have yelled for Brent, too, but, you know, in that moment, I'm only thinking of my brother, and so I just start screaming his name as loud as I can. And, uh, you know, I'm sure I'm saying, help me, you know. <clears throat> Jake, help me. But not like that. I'm, I can't probably reproduce it in here for you, you know, but I'm screaming. I'm, like, literally, like, I need some help. I'm not in a good spot. And uh, this goes on for what seems like quite quite a bit of time, but I don't know. I can't tell you what the time frame is, you know, and uh, she let go of my arm at one point and uh, she bit me in the head. And then 
I remember she, I was still curled up, and she bit me on the hip, and she literally picked me off the ground, like smashed me down on the ground. Not real high. You know, she didn't, like, pick me up four feet in the air. She just grabbed me by the hip, picked up my whole body weight with just her mouth, and smashed me down on the ground. And uh, I was like, yep, this is bad. <laughs> I'm not real, not real scared, and there's no pain at all. So it's not, like, painful. I'm not, like, in pain. You know, there's... I can feel pressure, like once you bite, you know, you can feel the pressure of being, of the bite, and uh, that's it, like, no pain, not like, and I never thought, like, oh, I'm gonna die, <laughs> so I just, just something you're going through, probably like a bad accident, or uh, maybe you could relate it to what people go through when they're in combat or something, you know, something takes over, whatever you're Whatever your primal senses or whatever is takes over and it's not painful. It's, I mean, it's scary, but it's not like terrifying like it is after it happens. And so she's just not stopping. Like I just I can't get her off me. I can't get her to stop, and uh, nobody's coming. Find out what happens next in part two of this three-part series. We'll hear how more gets the mauling to stop. As the bear moves away, Moore cries for help, hoping his hunting buddies will finally hear him. But instead, his screams bring the mother grizzly charging back. This is The Fine Line, and I'm Rebecca Huntington. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a vision of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to reduce fatalities and serious injuries in the Tetons. Find out more at backcountryzero.com.